My message this morning is on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. So if you want to open up your Bibles and uh, follow me as I read uh, that passage. Starting with verse 2. <clears throat> we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you rejoice, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless the proclamation of your word. May you be honored, and may our hearts be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message is Proof of Life. I'm sure that some of you have have seen the movie. Uh, it's a bit older, Meg Ryan, Russell Crowe, and if not, then you've seen other movies that are kind of like it, uh, that involve a hostage situation. Uh, Ransom comes to mind with Mel Gibson. Someone takes a hostage, okay, and makes demands that, that must be met in order to have the person return safely. But there's always a negotiator, right? There's a hostage negotiator. And the negotiator uh, wants something in particular before any demands are met. In case it was done in vain. You don't want to give the millions of dollars. That's usually what they want, right? They want some millions of dollars. The hostage negotiator wants proof of life. The loved ones are in a desperate situation. Right? They want to know that their loved one is still alive before they pay the ransom. Proof of life, indisputable evidence that they're alive. Confirmation that complying with demands will not be in vain. I bring that up because Paul found himself in a situation that parallels this in a lot of ways. So I want to, in order to fully understand what Paul is saying in this first chapter of Thessalonians, I want to go back a little bit, briefly, to the events that brought him up to this place. When Paul was about to begin his second missionary journey, you probably remember, this is all laid out in the book of Acts. He had a dispute with Barnabas over John Mark, who had abandoned them on their first missionary journey. So Paul... And Barnabas parted ways over that. 
Paul and Silas then began this second trip uh, towards Syria, while Barnabas and John Mark uh, went to Cyprus. Their purpose, Paul's purpose, was to revisit all the churches that had, that had begun on his first missionary journey. So we went through Lystra. They picked up Timothy in Lystra. Timothy, five years early, had probably been converted at that time. And now, these five years later, he joins uh, Paul and Silas on the missionary journey. They continued through Troas to Macedonia, where their first stop was Philippi. We're all familiar uh, with the situation that occurred there in Philippi. Paul and Silas were beaten, thrown into prison, and chained like animals because their conversions that was happening in, in the community there was costing some of the folks there uh, money. The bottom line was being met. It usually gets back to money, right? So Paul was uh, thrown into prison along with Silas after being beaten. If you remember, though, they were miraculously freed from the chains and the prison walls because they were begging for God to save them from this desperate situation. Right? No, that's actually not right. (laughs) Unbelievably, they were actually singing hymns of praise and worship, full of joy and thanksgiving. A very peculiar paradox. We'll get back to that. Free again, they journeyed on to Thessalonica, where they stayed for less than a month because they were chased out by Jewish leaders. Now remember, I'm just building the background here. What, what led up to Paul writing this letter to the Thessalonians? So he did journey there to Thessalonica. But he was chased out by Jewish leaders who accused them of turning the world upside down, which was true. Those Jewish leaders, their world of being the elite and only people of God, their world was being t- turned upside down because this gospel that Paul preached included the Greeks. It included us by the way, who were embracing the good news of being included in the family and the kingdom of God. These Jewish leaders didn't like it. What had been predestined to be was now being realized. God's love and mercy is not restricted to one people. We are also loved by God. We are also chosen by God. So Paul left by night. They chased him out. He went on to Berea where the gospel was also received. But the Jews, the same group of Jews, they chased him out also, these Jewish leaders. They soldiered on, though, to Athens. Timothy, though, was sent back to Thessalonica because Paul was concerned about the well-being of those Christians, those new believers that had started up there in Thessalonica. And up to this point, when you're reading in the book of Acts, it seems that that Paul is is like just a rock. He actually, compared to me, he was. But but there's a chink in the armor here, okay? He's he's concerned. You're beginning to see this, this desperation within him. Is anyone listening? So he sent Timothy back. 
He was afraid that they had fallen prey to the tempter and his labor would be in vain. Athens, though, was a city full of idols, one of which was the unknown God. And if you remember, Paul introduced the Athenians to their unknown God before moving on to Corinth. And there in Corinth, this is where Paul found himself in a state of weakness and discouragement. Those are his own words. He was in a state of weakness. And when I was reflecting on how Paul must have felt here, that's what reminded me of this situation that people find themselves in. Paul was desperate to know the condition of the church back in Thessalonica. And he was worried that his work had been in vain. The desperation that loved ones feel in seeking proof of life is the kind of desperation that Paul felt here. But this is when he received the good report back from Timothy about the condition of the church in Thessalonica. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter, which details the evidence of their spiritual vitality. Notice beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How does Paul know that God has chosen them? Verse 5 begins with, because. And then he begins to list the reasons he knows. He lists the evidence. He lists the proof of life that was there in Thessalonica. The main idea for my passage, for my message today, is that God's chosen people are identified and distinguished from others through the evidences of faith, love, and hope. It's actual, substantial, and real evidence. I'm going to support uh, this idea with four points. Proof of life, or the evidence of faith, hope, and love, can be found in the power of the Holy Spirit, who you are imitating, joy and suffering, and who is imitating you. The first evidence that Paul offers as proof of life is in verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Receiving the gospel with full conviction is proof that the Spirit of God is bringing His power to bear on your heart. The evidence that Paul presents here in the first chapter of Thessalonians may or may not be like progressive, as in one builds on top of the other, But one thing is for certain, the list cannot exist without this first occurrence happening first. Any evidence that's being accumulated apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us is falsified. It's thrown out. It's inadmissible. It is what the Bible tells us are filthy rags. We are powerless to achieve our regeneration or any measure of sanctification without the Holy Spirit illuminating the truth within us. 
Do we truly and honestly believe those words? I mean, the Bible teaches this, but do we believe it? I know if the question was presented to you on a test that you'd get the answer correct. Maybe a multiple, multiple choice test. But do we actually truly believe it? Do you really believe that you're hopelessly lost without the Holy Spirit working in you? Or do you think that maybe we can work it out, reason it out? Because the way we act sometimes in our lives reflects that that's what we really think. I know that's true for me. That's what, that's what God impressed upon me when I was reading this and and preparing this message, the Bible teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. That's what we are. Desperately wicked. Apart from God's Holy Spirit, His influence in our lives, that's what we are. Just read the book of 1 and 2 Kings. It's a... It's the recurring cycle and pattern. Human nature just degenerates without him. Until we see and embrace this truth, we'll be inclined to try to save ourselves. Skip down a few steps in this list that I have and begin working this out on our own until we recognize our desperate need We will not surrender our will, and until we surrender our will, the Spirit of God will not regenerate our heart and give us a new nature. We can't skip this step. That's what Paul is getting at here in verse 5 when he says, not only in word, but also in power. Without the Holy Spirit, the gospel is just words for intellectual consumption, to ponder and muse over. You may say, well, I thought the Bible says the Word of God will accomplish its purpose. And that's true. That's right. God will accomplish His purpose. His Word will not return void. Isaiah 55, 11. God is unstoppable in accomplishing what He sets out to do. He will do it. With you or without you. God doesn't need us. We need Him. You cannot surrender to God without his call. So don't take that for granted either. That's John 6.44. The word comes alive in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, though, and we either surrender with full conviction, as the Thessalonians did, or we'll stiffen with pride, which is very dangerous because that puts us on a different path of progression. It's described in Romans chapter 1 that leads to a dark place of being given over to a debased or reprobate mind. That's where our human nature leads us. Surrender to God's call leads to light and revelation. Resisting God's call leads to darkness and confusion. This is true of our regeneration and the process of sanctification. I know that many of us, most of us here, 
have surrendered our will and received salvation from God and had the power of the Holy Spirit come into our lives and regenerate us. But it's still true of sanctification. Are you so foolish? Having, been, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Galatians 3.3. 3. Of course not. That's what Paul's getting at in Galatians. We begin by the Spirit and we continue by the Spirit. We must continually, over and over and over every day, surrender again to God. I'm not trying to say that we can lose our salvation. Absolutely not. But surrendering our will after regeneration leads to the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians and the evidence that Paul lists here. Proof of life begins with receiving the gospel with full conviction through the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, Paul says that proof of life is also, my second point, in who you are imitating. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul elaborates in chapter 2 on exactly what their example was to the Thessalonians, which they're now following. He says the Thessalonians witnessed how holy and righteous and blameless their conduct was. Paul had probably challenged them as he challenged the Philippians to join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's Philippians 3.17. And he also challenged the Corinthians to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. Those are strong words for Paul. I I don't know that I could actually tell someone in, in those strong of terms. But Paul was able to follow me. Look at me. Do as I do. So who are you imitating? Who do you have your eyes on? Where do we find our heroes? In the movies? Television shows? The music industry? That's a huge one. American Idol. I think every continent has a version of that program. There's one here in the UAE, in the Middle East. I forget the name of it, but they something other idol. And it's the same kind of thing. It's the music industry's uh, version of that country will select who their favorite idol is. What about athletes? Or do you aspire to be successful like high achievers in business, in your field? Maybe you're more like me, though, and you tend to not have heroes. So I would ask, then, who do you envy? Because that's the same thing. That's just like a self-worship. You want to replace those people in their status. So not having heroes doesn't let us off the hook. It doesn't let me off the hook. Are there any people of holy character that you have your eye on so that you can be like them? Look around this assembly. This is a big part of why we need one another. 
we cover one another's blind spots. There are so many of my brothers and sisters here who have qualities that I want to emulate. Because you, you motivate me to be better. Our aim is, yes, to be like Christ, but we need intermediate goals to help us get there. If, you, if you're a triathlete and you, you aspire to do these races, you can't do the Ironman next month. You, you have to start out with a sprint, train up to that, and then a, maybe a super sprint, and then an Olympic distance, maybe a half Ironman. And then after two years of stupidity, I mean diligence, you can tackle the Ironman with these step increases. I don't know about you, but being like Christ is a long way off for me. It's way beyond the Ironman. So I need my brothers and sisters here to help me to see a more attainable goal. But if this is the only time we set aside, we'll never make headway. This is not enough. This assembly here, just coming on Friday, not nearly enough. Number one, because all of our time is probably spent chasing our real heroes if this is the only time we set aside. And number two, It's simply not enough either way. See, there's a war that's going on between the old and the new man if if we did the first step first. If not, then there is no war going on. You've already lost. Let's say there's two gladiators inside of us. And they're fighting. This is really actually what what is happening within us. There is a battle that's going on. So which one will win? The outcome is not certain. God doesn't promise that outcome. There's an if. That is our responsibility. So how how do we ensure that the outcome comes out the way we want? This gladiator that we'll name the divine nature, how do we ensure that, that that gladiator wins the battle? The war is won already if we have received Christ. The war is won. But whether you live a victorious life and and what what your reward is in heaven, that's in question. The gladiator that we feed is the one that will win. So who do you feed? And how do you feed them? This is where we have to join that home group. Join a discipleship group or start a discipleship group. These are some of the methods that uh, the church leadership, Matthew, has, has developed for us. To feed on. This is the table that's set. Look to your left and right. Join forces with one another. 
and let's fight. The new season is upon us. Here's, this, is a, this is a new beginning. Every day is a new beginning. You know, I tell my boys all the time, and those of you who are in my home group, you have heard it many times, I'm sure, too. You can't really dedicate your life to God. It just doesn't work that way. You can dedicate today to God. Tomorrow, you have to do it again. And if you put enough days together that are dedicated to God, then you've dedicated your life to God. It's day by day. We have to do this every day. We can't miss a day. Because that's a missed opportunity. We need to replace the fake, empty, powerless heroes with men and women who strive to be holy and righteous and blameless. Proof of life is in who we choose to imitate. My third point is in the last part of verse 6, where there's more evidence of the Thessalonian spiritual vitality. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Joy and suffering, they don't seem to go together. They're opposites. Experiences that uh, we encounter, they tend to invoke one or the other. Marriage is a joyful occasion. Divorce is not so much. If we win, we're... We have joy. If we lose, we suffer. At birth and life, there's joy. At death, there's suffering. When we're hired, we have joy. When we're fired, we have suffering. These opposite events inspire opposite emotions. So how is there any joy in suffering? That's what Paul wrote here, though. You receive the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Before we tackle that question uh, completely, let me say, though, on the authority of God's Word, suffering is not only predictable, but it is inevitable for followers of Jesus. We will suffer in this life and in this world. I have a list of scriptures here. I'm not going to read all of them because I'm not going to have time probably. But I'm going to read a few of them. John 15, 9. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Romans 8, 18. And if children, then heirs. I love this passage. Because if you have a pedigree like mine, this, this verse, every time I read it, I, I just want to fall down and worship. It's, it's amazing. It, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Unbelievable. We, we, we tend to miss the last part, though. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
I'm not making it up. It's just right there. In this book, 1 Thessalonians 3.3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. It is our purpose. How is that? I'm going to skip the others. Go down to 1 John 3.13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, it didn't say if the world hates you. He said that the world hates you. Now, maybe you're saying that uh, the world doesn't hate you. Then you're not doing it right. Because that's what the Bible says. The world will hate you. If you follow Jesus, the world will hate you. We see evidence of it throughout the world. The Bible is clear. A life of leisure and pleasure is not promised in this world. The promises we have are culminated and they come to full fruition in the next life. Satan is the one offering lucrative prosperity here and now. What he tempted Jesus with is what he tempts and deceives us with. It's what he tempted Eve with. Autonomy. Independence. We have to be on guard against the wolves in sheep's clothing who are peddling the lies of Satan himself. When Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000, if you remember that, many stopped following shortly after because they realized that following Jesus was not just a free lunch, but it meant taking up your cross, suffering hardships right along with him. When Jesus asked his disciples shortly after that if they would also leave, if you remember what Peter said, Peter answered, this is like, this captures the paradigm of Christian experience. In one short phrase, Peter said, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We can't go back. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You see, Peter saw that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to what we are promised in the next life. Our question still remains, though, how do we have joy in suffering? Because we will suffer, right? But we can have joy. It's not a sad story. How do these two opposites coexist, resulting from the same event? I believe the answer is in Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's how we have joy in suffering. There are many kinds of suffering, but suffering for the cause of Christ invokes joy in the heart of believers. Suffering that is directly related to and brought upon you because you follow him inspires joy because it is the ultimate identification that I am his and he is mine. There's no better way to say it or state it or make it known. This is why Paul sang with joy when he was chained up in the Philippian jail. And it's how Paul knew that the Thessalonians were true believers. 
Proof of life is in the union of these polar opposites, joy and suffering. So is being identified with Christ the most important identification in your life? I had to ask myself these hard questions. What is the most important identification for me? What causes me anxiety? If Christ, being identified with him, is the most important, suffering that is intentionally brought to bear on you because you love and follow him will invoke joy. The kind of joy that the world just cannot understand is incomprehensible. It's folly to them. Further evidence, though, point four of our devotion to our Lord is in verses 7 through 10. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Proof of life is also in who imitates you. What does your life inspire others to be? Are saints being sanctified and sinners being drawn to the gospel? That was the case for the believers in Thessalonica. Their witness and testimony spread everywhere. So Paul said, I do not need to defend your faith. It speaks for itself through the testimony of others. I come from an area uh, in the United States that we affectionately just call the South. I think it starts somewhere around, it's really like Southeast, I think. No offense to anyone from the Southwest, okay? But in the U.S., the South is really somewhere around Texas, I think, all the way over uh, to the Carolinas, minus the southern part of Florida. If you go too far south in Florida, somehow you leave the South. (laughs) But in the South, where I'm from, affectionately, Some people use it in a derogatory manner, but that's okay also. Uh, When we witness an event that so profoundly conveys a message that words are not needed, we still actually use some words. And we say, well, shut my mouth. You guys know what I'm talking about that are from the U.S. But that's what we say, shut my mouth. And that's what Paul said here. Your testimony and the testimony of others about you has caused me to not even need words to describe it any longer because it has spread throughout the entire known world. This chapter begins with remembering the work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Now here, Paul lists the actual work and labor and steadfastness that others throughout the known world, apparently, reported about them. Notice in the last part of verse 9, how you turn to God from idols. That's the work of faith. 
You're depending on whatever this idol is. My job, my money, this relationship. There are so many idols that we have that we depend on. But the Thessalonians, they turned from their idols to God. That's the work of faith. I trust God, not anything that is within this structure that we live in. To serve the living and true God, that's the labor of love. We have work to do for Him. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the steadfastness of hope. I want to focus on that for just a moment, the hope. When the full weight and knowledge that this life is temporary, when it really hits us, when we fully embrace the truth, we will count all in this world as loss. When a loved one dies, as my, my wife's uh, father died as soon as we got home, uh, unexpectedly in a tragic accident, and it always brings this back home to bear upon us, the brevity of life. It causes us, though, to reflect. And, and as, as my father-in-law was lying in the hospital bed, and he was, he was subdued, he wasn't conscious. And so we weren't really able to interact with him. But as I was standing there and praying over him and talking to him, hoping maybe he heard, I couldn't help but think, what if that were me lying there, what would people be remembering about me? What would they think and know of, of my life? And it really brings things into perspective, our priorities, what we should be doing. Really less of what we are doing and more of what we're not. At least that's the conviction that I came to, standing there. Our deliverer is coming back to complete our restoration. And all of this will be no more. Everything will be gone. If that makes us dread the future, then our hope is set on temporal things. That should make us feel joyful inside. What if I were able to tell you that this will all end within 25 years? Would that change what you do, how you live? I know what you're saying. No one knows. That's true. could be 1,000 years. could be 2,000 years. We don't know if it's going to be 25 years. That's right, but not for you and I. For you and I, it will be soon. Our life is like a vapor, the book of James tells us. So let's set our hope on God's promise for the next life. Look to the coming of our Deliverer. With anticipation to say from our hearts, come Lord Jesus. That's a happy and joyful occasion. When we set our hope, on our imperishable inheritance, we're able to endure to the end. Anything else is illogical. This is the truth that we come to. 
it's not logical to be any other way when we truly set our hope on that inheritance, on what is to come. In conclusion, let me ask if a modern day Timothy were sent to investigate your spiritual condition as Paul sent Timothy back to the Thessalonians, what would he put in his report? Would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? You know, in the, uh, in the army, we have, we have this process we have to go through in the military. It's probably every military. I'm sure it's every military. But I spend a lot of time in the military, and they have this process where when you reach certain levels, not necessarily by rank, but just by job description, the uh, sensitivity of the job, you have, to, you have to obtain clearances, security clearances. And, you know, different levels of security clearances. But if you want a top-secret clearance and be privy to all these uh, sensitive, the sensitive information, there's a process, an investigation that, that has to be undergone. And so investigators actually come out and they ask questions of your neighbors. You don't even know. They're, they're interviewing people that you know from your past. From when I had to get this clearance, I mean, they were going back. I mean, I had friends calling me and say, hey, this guy, man, he's spooky. Folks showing up asking questions about you. What am I supposed to say? I said, just tell them the truth. I mean, look, if, if you tell the truth, you never have to have a good memory, right? <laughs> the truth is just the truth. And so what they do, though, is they compare, you know, what, what people are saying about you. Are there differences? Are there any uh, inconsistencies? It's, it's a process that's a, a, little bit, it's a little bit unnerving. And this is going to happen for us, though. We will, the investigation does not need to actually be launched because God keeps a record. So let's follow the example of the Thessalonians and receive the gospel with full conviction and power of the Holy Spirit. And let's select our heroes from among followers of Jesus and experience the joy of the ultimate identification with Christ. That is the fellowship of His suffering. So that others will be inspired to follow that same pattern and thereby we will be ushering into this world within our own existence, the kingdom of God. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that was set there in Thessalonia. I pray, Lord, that we individually would determine within our own hearts and minds that we would follow that example, and that we would look to you as our example, and that we would determine and purpose that we would be useful in this life to accomplish your will and purpose and to honor you and, and to do uh, what you have us to do to establish your kingdom. 
Lord, change our hearts and help us to be more devoted to you. That we would have the evidence in our lives that was present there in in Thessalonica. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.